You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have Monica M. LaRonda. She's an assistant professor of pediatrics and endocrinology at Northwestern. We've been talking about a bioprosthetic ovary that was created using uh, a 3D printing method, which uh, she'll get into. So, Monica, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm always excited to talk about our research. Yeah, what's, you know, maybe it's obvious, but what's the reason to try to uh, recreate or 3D print an ovary? Yeah, our um, main patient population are um, childhood cancer survivors. So, so those children that either have a disease or uh, treatment for their disease that would render them um, infertile later in life. And so they would have uh, reduced um, reproductive capacity and reduced sex hormone function. And so... Um, developing a bioprosthetic ovary or a 3D printed ovary is, is one way that we're trying to advance their um, regeneration options. Huh. So, um, I mean, how far along in this process are you? Have you been able to construct an ovary and uh, have any functionality at all, or is it still really early on in the process? Yeah, we've been um, successful in mice. Um, so we've been able to 3D print uh, a scaffold that supports um, the ovarian cells that that are important for function, so the potential egg cells or the oocyte, and the surrounding supportive hormone-producing cells. Um, together, that's called an ovarian follicle, um, and it's it's critical. Uh, one of the things that we discovered was that it was it was very critical to have um, this spheroid structure, this cell aggregate structure, maintained um, in a particular you know, 3D printed geometry um, that would allow them to, to grow and mature and ovulate. First, we found that it ovulated in culture. Um, and then we were very excited to then transplant um, these bioprosthetic ovaries in mice whose ovaries were removed, um, mate them, and they were able to produce pups. So their hormone and fertility was restored with this, with this transplant. Oh, wow. How, uh, I haven't really thought about ovaries very much. I don't think most people have, but uh, no. <laughs> in a normal ovary, like I would guess you'd have the cells dividing normally. And then how is the actual egg cell produced? Is it a differentiation of a different cell type that exists in the ovary and that becomes an egg cell or how does an egg cell that's, come into being? Yeah, that's a really good point. And, I, and, I, and, and it brings me to a, a very important factor about um, female fertility, which is, which is that our oocytes are a finite resource. They're actually 
once we're born, we have the, the most number of potential egg cells that we'll ever have. And it just declines from there until um, natural menopause um, or until something you know, destructive comes along, either a genetic mutation or, or a disease or a treatment um, that would affect those cell numbers. They're, the oocytes are actually um, paused in meiosis, which if you remember from from biology classes, not the same as, as my, mitosis. So they're not doubling. They're not, they're not copying themselves. They're trying to create like, uh, you know, half their genetic material so that, you know, the, the two halves can be combined and develop into an embryo and a, and a new human being, the two halves being, you know, the egg um, and the sperm. So they're, so they're frozen that way at birth. Okay. So from what you've observed, it is true that you know, by the time an organism is born, it has all the egg cells it's going to have. And then mm-hmm. they hang out there not doing much. And then according to some hidden timing schedule, one or more of them, you know, every month or every gestation cycle will now suddenly undergo meiosis and create what? Yeah. So I think, so I think the, um, the egg expert colleagues that I have would, would, um, want me to point out that the egg is not just hanging out there doing <laughs> doing nothing that is actually a, an important contributor to the process but but in some sense it's it's paused in in meiosis but it does really grow and expand and that's that's one of the aspects that we have to um consider when when we create the the 3d printed scaffolding um that the oocyte itself and the cells surround it will um expand to over 600 times their original size. Um, and so it just, you just have to have this dynamic structure that is able to hold them. And so as it's, as it's growing, um, it, it kind of prepares itself and, and it's kind of a black box, box as to actually what, what happens in some respects, um, which makes doing this sort of research really fascinating. Um, but it just, it, it readies itself to, to complete meiosis upon ovulation. Um, and then the sperm will combine um, its half of the DNA to then develop, first create a zygote um, and then develop into an embryo. If that implants, then it becomes a fetus and a whole unique um, being. Right, but even considering, you know, I'm, I'm realizing how, how little I know. <clears throat> it, so when you... 3D print an ovary. You know, you said you've done it in mice. I mean, are you 3D printing? I guess you're 3D printing egg cells as well, right? But are they? I mean, so when a person's born, are their egg cells immature and they age with the person? And then when the person reaches a certain age, then the cells are ready, according to some clock, to start being candidates for meiosis and traveling down the fallopian tubes. I mean, or are these yeah, I... egg cells like ready at all times to be harvested? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think what might might help um, is if I if I create that link between the patient and how we're going to use like this regenerative medicine type of technology. So um, when a, a, a child is diagnosed with cancer um, and they're going to receive this this treatment that puts them at over 80% risk of developing infertility, they qualify for our ovarian tissue cryopreservation procedures that we have at Lurie Children's Hospital. Um, I co-direct the Fertility and Hormone Preservation and Restoration Program with my colleague, um, Aaron Rowell, who's a pediatric surgeon. And um, 
her and I offer this, this clinical procedure to patients. And so an ovary is removed, one ovary is removed pr uh, ideally prior to their initial chemotherapy or treatment. So before it would be exposed to these um, potential harmful effects, it's processed and then cryopreserved. So there's been several patients um, who have had offspring, so have, have gotten pregnant and had live births from ovarian tissue that was transplanted um, after it had been cryopreserved in this same way that we do here in the clinic. Um, however, there's a many cancer patients that have metastatic disease, and so they wouldn't qualify for this transplantation procedure um, because we don't want to like give them back the disease that they just survived. And so what we do with the tissue is we isolate out the cells that we want. So we want the oocytes from that patient because it will have their, their biological material, which is very important for them um, to pass on to their offspring. And we'll also harvest the, the hormone cells. Um, and we'll put that into a 3D printed scaffold that we, we make in the lab. And so then the transplantation happens like it normally would have, but this time we know that there's no metastatic cells in there. And hopefully we can even make a, a, a better version of, of what um, exists with the tissue today. Um, right, so the, right. yeah, so the scaffolding itself is what's, is what's actually printed and it's at a specific architecture to hold those ovarian follicles, which is the potential egg cells and the hormone producing cells. Um, and we seed those into the scaffolding. I, I got that, but I guess my question was if I have a, someone that's five years old mm -hmm. and I cryopreserve one of their ovaries yeah. and now they're 25, everything looks good. And I put the ovary back into them. They can, they can have kids within what time period like pretty quickly. Yeah, that's a good question. So, so most of um, the live births that have, that have happened are, are from adults or post pubertal children um, that have been cryopreserved when they were post-pubertal and then transplanted back when they were adults and wanted to get pregnant. So there's only been two cases where, where this tissue was transplanted back um, that was preserved um, prior to them going through their full pubertal transition. So we, we hope that it works the same. We know from animal studies that, that um, and from some human studies that we can get um, eggs produced from these immature primordial follicles that are collected um, from pediatric patients. Um, but we're, we're actually doing a, a large research study to figure out the quality um, and, and the rate at which this can happen, because you're right, it's, it's coming out of a person who doesn't have that hormonal cycle, um, which is what activates those follicles and matures those oocytes into good quality eggs um, that happens through puberty and after puberty um, in an adult woman. Yeah, I wonder if anyone's done a, a longitudinal study on oocytes and looked at them, you know, over a person's lifetime. Because, you know, because like, for instance, you know, a woman's cycle has timing, definite timing to it. Right. So you wonder if the first, um, if, if a woman's first cycle matures all her eggs to a point where they're candidates to, you know, to travel on the floor. Oh, no, 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 no. Or if yeah, it me... takes X number of cycles. No, no, no. There's, there's a few, there's a few um, oocytes that are recruited at a time. Um, and then one, one very special one is ovulated. 
you know, and that happens, you know, between, you know, 28 and 30, 32 days in, in a normal cycling female. Um, but not all okay, of them so are once all, you're, all recruited. Yeah. Oh, so once you're chosen, you're picked out of the, out of the bunch, that's it. It's either go or no go. And what happens yeah, to the it's ones either that are no go? Okay. Yeah, they die off <laughs> or, or they're ovulated, but it's, it's a cluster of them at a time. Um, but it depletes, you know, like we're, we're born with about 300,000. Um, and then it, it depletes down to about a thousand per ovary once we reach menopause. And so, it, you know, there's, there are several recruited that, that don't make it to eggs. Um, but not all of them are recruited at once. It happens over decades. Well, okay. Okay. I gotcha. But again, yeah, so on a, a study on the ones that are just hanging out in, in the freezer, essentially, or hanging out in the ovary, not matured yet or not picked, and what happens to them over time? Well, there's been there's been some studies, definitely, of of because we do the way that we do assisted reproductive technologies with like IVF, um, you know, in vitro fertilization. Um, you know, many many families have to to go through that process where you where the woman. Um, has you know an increased hormone regimen to recruit more um, ovarian follicles to grow, and then we're capturing them before they get ovulated out of the ovary, um, and then using those in the lab to make embryos. You know, once combined with sperm, or to freeze them for later. Um, and so we do use some of those uh, eggs that wouldn't normally be ovulated um, to create embryos and to create beings um with the assisted reproductive yeah with IVF and things like that but but we are studying I think where there's a lack of research is um the pre-pubertal and through the pubertal transition which which I think because I'm in in the department of pediatrics I'm very interested in um like what happens at during that transition and how does the ovary change and how do the follicles capacity to be good quality eggs um change over time can can you tell which eggs are going to be next on deck to be uh, to be developed? Like uh, the way the eggs are stored, are they stored in like a regular like honeycomb pattern? And let's say the ones on the quote unquote top or nearest the exit are the ones that are most likely to be you know taken for the next batch. Is there any? That's uh, a yeah. That, there's a lot of theories out there. Um, so the the ones that are kind of the bank, we call them the bank of eggs or potential eggs. Um, those primordial follicles, um, they're in a more rigid part of the ovary. So they're in what's called the cortical region. Um, and then the, they migrate um, into the middle of the ovary before they expand and then reach the, the edge again where they then ovulate out. But the growing happens within the middle, which is really interesting. And the, and the bank stays on the outer perimeter. Um, so there's a lot of theories as to which ones are going to be recruited next based on, you know, which ones were formed first, um, in the embryo, which ones underwent meiosis first or completed, um, the first part of meiosis to be, um, you know, then quiescent. Um, and then also where the, where they were located in the tissue, not just in the cortex, but were they next closer to the kidney or further away? For example, um, yeah, there's a lot of there's theories out there, but I, I don't know that answer. Yeah, I'm sorry, Max. Yeah, <laughs> stuff that's coming to mind, but I, did, I just realized 
oh, this is something that's very complex and I haven't really thought about it at all. But most people haven't. So that's why I'm asking these questions because all this stuff's popping into my head now and I'm like, wait a minute. So. Yeah, and this is why using 3D printing is is interesting and, and I think useful in this particular case because um, the ovary is complex and compartmentalized and we do, we're publishing a, a study soon from my lab where we investigated all of the structural proteins of the ovary um, and mapped it spatially throughout the ovary um, to define these, these not just rigidity differences, but biochemical differences that might actually affect how follicles behave um, in an attempt to make the best possible um, ovarian bioprosthetic. So this is not necessarily a permanent solution, but is this maybe a short-term one where, like you said, someone's had childhood cancer, you were able mm -hmm. to preserve at least you know, the egg cells, if not the whole ovary itself. And now mm -hmm. is your best hope to give them a window, like a three to five year window or something where they could have natural born children, but that's about all you're going to get? Or like, what's the goal of the project? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So um, when we transplant back ovarian tissue, um, the average age that that tissue lasts. And so it's, it's quite often about 20% of the, the um, tissue is put back at a time. It lasts about two to five years, but sometimes it lasts longer. Sometimes it lasts like 12 years. And this is based on um, you know, the type of ovarian sex hormones that are produced um, and testing that within the blood. Um, and so our, our goal is to have a long-term transplant um, and we might be able to do better than, than the natural ovarian tissue that exists in those type of transplants, just because we might be able to control the environment a little more, um, with, with the scaffolding, with the 3d printing. And so we're hoping to get a long-term transplant, but I think short-term, um, restoration of, of fertility is, is definitely one of our key, like targets when we first start moving these into the clinic. Um, first looking for um, hormonal restoration and then seeing if we can get some short-term year or two ovulation um, to help them have a biological child. I figured, yeah. yeah. So what, yeah. what are you trying to 3D print? The whole ovarian structure or just the last stage of it? The last you know, bank part where they're ready to, to be selected for maturation? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. So the what our first focus is um, to do the cortical region. So exactly right, the, the region that um, the, the oocytes are banked. And this is because generally um, we take out one ovary to cryopreserve it and the other ovary remains. And so we wait until that ovary essentially goes through early menopause. We call it ovarian insufficiencies. Um, and then we, we transplant it back onto that remaining ovary. And so the rest of that tissue is there. Um, whether or not it's an ideal organ to, to put it on um, is another thing that we need to test because we're sure that a postmenopausal ovary isn't the perfect environment. But, but the first attempt that we're going to do is to, is to transplant it back on, onto that remaining ovary. And so we'll just need to make that bank a cortical region um, to house the, the primordial follicles. Well, the reason I ask is it's so complicated. 
you know, good luck if you can even do a small part of it. So you might as well yeah. go for the, the one <laughs> yeah. part that has the best chance of succeeding. You know? Yeah, you're really getting at like basic, basically our, our stepwise strategy of, of our first lines of successes. And then, of course, there's the there's the ultimate goals of recreating the entire organ and it and it functions for a longer time than than the natural ovary. Um, that would be that would be ideal. Yeah, the, for women to not have to go through menopause and then stay that way for about half their life at this point. <laughs> so that would be that would be awesome if we could recreate the whole ovary. Well, what happens to the ovaries in menopause? I mean, do they stop growing? I mean, do they still continue apparently as normal? It's just that the you know the oocytes aren't formed at the end, or does the whole thing shut down? Like what what what's been observed? Yeah, basic basically the whole thing shuts down. So. So there's um, gonadotropins that are that uh, control follicular genesis and respond to hormones that come from the ovary. So those um, those are off kilter um, in response, and the ovary just stops producing estradiol. I mean, it's a it's a decline, so it's not an immediate type thing, um, though it might feel that way for a lot of women. Um, where they all of a sudden just have all of these symptoms of complete estrogen withdrawal um, and no more progesterone. And then there's, of course, other things that the, that the ovary produces. Um, but there's, interestingly, there's, there's still a bank left. Like I said, there's about a thousand um, primordial follicles left. It's just not enough um, for the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis of, of hormones to continue on with that cycle. Um, that would then trigger ovulation um, and, and then result in more estradiol produced and that it's a whole cyclical effect. Um, that this, may be a, this may be an oversimplification, but I see it as like three stages. There's like the bank stage, the primordial, primordial part where they hang out. And you said that gets down to be about a thousand and then it, they just kind of sit there, I guess, forever. And then yeah. there's the growth, the growth part in the middle where they grow mm -hmm. huge 600 times the size. And then there's the last stage. Now we're there prepped and shoved out the door to you know for conception um mm -hmm. so it, in a postmenopausal woman the first stage is still there there's still the bank of cells sitting there but they don't do they do they just not progress to the second stage i call it you know where they start to grow and expand and develop or is it yeah, just exactly. the third they're stage just, that's no it's it's the second stage so they're not recruited to grow and the growing ones actually produce the estradiol um and then the the post um ovulatory follicle creates this um, small gland that produces progesterone and then regress regresses. So the hormone production happens um, at what you're identifying as the, the second and, and third stages. Um, okay, but that's good. Yeah, so the, the bank of follicles exists from birth to death, um, but are just kind of hanging out until they're recruited and then, and then they stop being recruited. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to understand yeah. it. I, I appreciate it. Yeah. So um, you're making a scaffolding. So I guess you're modeling that on what the the last third or the last part of the ovary looks like that, that houses the cells that are just about ready to, again, I just call it be head out the door and become candidates for fertilization. That's what you're trying to recreate with your scaffolding is just that section. We're actually trying to create the, the first part, the bank. Um, oh, and okay. hoping. Yeah and hoping that they'll grow, they'll be activated um, within the remaining ovary um, and that the scaffold will be dynamic enough like it was in the mouse model actually, 
um, to withstand those changes in size um, and actually just be remodeled by the follicles and the other cells that they recruit within this within the scaffold itself um, to actually reform and kind of remake that tissue. So we're kind of assuming that this is what happens in development and and this is what I'm excited to discover um, in some of our future future research studies. Um, but we we think that the prepubertal ovaries is more like the whole cortex. So once those um, follicles are triggered to grow, then a medulla type forms um, where it gives it the space. And we're so hoping to kind of recreate that with the 3D printed scaffold um, and with the help of the remaining ovarian tissue, if that makes sense. So you're saying that we don't, science doesn't know the morphology of the ovary and how it changes from birth through puberty to the adult stage? We know what yeah, it looks it like in the adults, but... Yeah. We and, it, and we know what it looks like in the prepubertal ovary, and we we see them all the time. But we don't know how the environment, the the micro environments, the scaffolding proteins, the stromal cells that are around it, how that changes. And that's what we're that's what we're studying in the lab. Um, but we but in the mouse model, we were able to create this three D printed scaffold where it housed the small follicles. But then once they were triggered to grow um, it, because it's made from gelatin, which the, the cells can interact with and digest um, and break away. It, they just reformed an ovary. They recruited vessels when it was transplanted um, and it ovulated right, right through it. So we're hoping that a similar thing will happen when we create it for large animal models and then for humans. I guess there's a, you know, we don't understand the cell-to-cell -cell signaling within yeah. the ovarian structures with the surrounding microenvironment, then with the surrounding other organs and the rest of the organism. So there's like probably multiple levels of signaling going on back and forth. And it sounds like we don't really understand almost any of that yet. Yeah. And it's, it's really a fascinating part of biology. I think that if you just give the, the cells the right environment, that they'll, they'll behave how they need to. Um, and, and that there might be some form of control that we can create within the 3D printed scaffolds, um, which, is, which is exciting, that we might be able to you know, design something that's even better. So have you tried different orientations and morph morphologies of the scaffolding? You know, given that the body's gonna yes. do what it's gonna do anyway and remodel the thing, have you found more advantaged structures or morphologies to start out with that seemed to work better? Yeah, absolutely, we did. Um, so we, at first, because they're round, thought that we could print these round pores um, and just kind of slot them in, and that would be good. But they, it was first, it was very hard to actually get the follicles into something that was, you know, meant to be about the same size. And they weren't captured in the pores, like they weren't held within different layers of the scaffolding. Cause you imagine we want to, we want to fill it to capacity and there's several layers to this 3D printed structure. Um, it just really didn't work. And so we tried angles then. So we tried um, 90 degree angles and 60 degree angles and 30 degree angles. Um, and it turned out that 60 degree angles and 30 degree angles were were the best ones to support the ovarian follicles. And the 60 degree angle was the one that we actually used for the 3D printed scaffolds because not only was it supportive of the follicle, but it also gave us enough space to put 
put more of them in um, one one you know piece of a scaffold. So it was it was quite interesting to kind of go through that and and to figure out that we we needed to do the the angular and advancing offset um, 3D printing design in order to hold something that was round. If if you're gonna 3D print this and make it, why not study how the ovary is formed, you know, in utero when the embryo is developing? I mean, if you can picture it somehow, if you can see it and see how it's developed, maybe it's developed like radially outwards from a central point. Maybe it's built up, I don't know, uh, bilaterally on two sides. It's probably not built up at all, like a 3D printed way and layer by layer. <clears throat> maybe if you're able to figure that out and emulate that, you'd have more success in making it. Yeah, I, I see. I see your line of um, thinking. The problem is um, this: the cells of the ovary, and as it's developing, um, can be singular. So they can be isolated cells, um, and they can migrate. So they're kind of long and flat, and what you would traditionally think of like a fibroblastic type cell. Um, but the oocyte, in once we're born, it can't be uncoupled from the granulosa cells. So we need to maintain that that sphere, um, and so it it has to be it, the scaffolding itself has to be something that has a pocket to hold the sphere together. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, I got yeah. you. I got you. Boy, you've chosen yourself a tough challenge, but it's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I keep thinking. Sheesh. So what? Um, where are you at specifically with this? So you said it's it's worked in mice. What? Uh, I mean, are you able to, you know, is a clinical trial in the works for this in people or is it not at that stage yet where it's working, you know, well enough to do that? Yeah, it's not at that stage yet. We're, we're testing larger animal models first. Um, and we're doing, we're doing some investigations, like I mentioned, of, of what the microenvironment looks like in both larger animal models and some ovarian tissue that, that, we, um, that participants donate, which we're extremely grateful for. Um, but we're, we're looking more into the microenvironment because we think it's, you know, humans aren't mice. And so we expect that it will be more complicated um, than using a, a gelatin um, ink for the 3D printed scaffolds. But we'll, we'll need other types of proteins and biochemical cues um, for the follicles for larger animal models. Yeah. Well, I think just the uniqueness of your gelatin model that allows the cells to migrate and the, the, the host to, you know, orchestrate them as it needs to. I mean, I think that's a big innovation. And I'm sure other people yeah. that are trying to 3D print new scaffolds would benefit from that, that kind of scale, uh, scaffolding themselves. Yeah, I think so. Any, especially anything that needs to be maintained in an aggregate structure um, the way that our follicles do. I think that this, this type of design um, was an important piece to work out um, and, and why not use our, our favorite, you know, animal model, right? Mice. Um, plus, the, plus we were able to use some, um, you know, genetic manipulations to show that, that the pups that were born were from the transplant and not from um, the mom that gave birth to them, if, if that makes sense. We used a, a green fluorescent protein, which is always fun. Um, so the, the pups came out fluorescing green. Um, but yeah, I think that that was an important part of the of the design and to to work out um, the architectural part. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, what what animals are next? You know, what can you uh, what animals can you work with? Yeah, we're thinking of so we have a few animal models that we're working on for 
for different aspects of this. So we were able to receive um, porcine and, and bovine. So pigging, pigging cow tissue from slaughterhouses, um, which is great for us to use because uh, there are their ovary compartments are more like humans than, than mice are. Um, so that's what we're using to, to study kind of the architecture and the design. And then we, we of course always go back and confirm it um, with human tissue. Um, but as far as transplants, um, we'll have to see uh, what type of animals will, will be the best option um, for those. Okay, well, you know, this is like really fascinating. Um, Thanks. So what's what's the best way for people to uh, you know to learn more? I don't know if they're going to read scientific papers, but you know how can they look and see what you're doing and learn more, even if they're not like a, an egg expert? Part yeah, yeah. So so I definitely have a, a faculty webpage at both Northwestern University and um, Lurie Children's. Our clinical website is luriechildrens.org/fertility. And my personal lab website where you can read little bios of, of the lab members that work in, in my lab and, and hear some updates um, of what we're doing is lorondalab.org. Okay, very good. Well, I appreciate coming. It's been a really cool conversation and I hope I haven't uh, driven you crazy with the questions. Oh, no, no, no. It's, it's always fun to talk about our research, um, especially when I feel like I'm informing people about things that they, they don't normally think about. So thank you. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now and the companies that are using these technologies for the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, Please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.